Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. I'd like to welcome you to our program. This is a new program. In fact, this is the first installment of the program I'm going to be teaching, which is entitled The Final Redemption of Israel. This is going to be an interesting study, particularly for a lot of Christians, because we're going to be covering a topic that, for the most part, the Hebrew people know about, the Jewish believers know about, but most Christians have never heard this put together in this manner. And I hope and pray that this will be edifying to all of you as we pull all the scriptures together to show what this looks like. This is the number one reason that the Jewish people argue that Yeshua of Nazareth can't be the Messiah because their understanding of this topic, the final redemption, they don't see that Yeshua of Nazareth did that. As a result, that's what they use as a disqualifier for Yeshua being the Messiah. For all of my evangelical Christian friends who want to share the faith of Yeshua with other people, if they're going to be serious about sharing the faith with some of my Jewish people and my own brethren, you're going to need to know about this topic. And by the way, I would also add, you need to know about this topic because this is really what's going to be happening. A lot of the things that we've been told, and I learned as a Christian, as a young Christian, falls way short of what this topic is about. Most of the Christian world has this idea that when the Messiah came and he was sacrificed on the cross and he was resurrected and so forth, that this was the redemption. This was the redemption from God. This is what God purposed. In effect, it was a concluding event of the prophecies leading up to the Messiah. Then the next event, there's like a gap, and the next event is the return of the Messiah and judgment that will be upon the world. That's a very simplified definition of what is called the final redemption, but it falls far short of what the Scripture actually teaches. And we have bits and pieces of what people understand to happen, but they don't quite get the big picture. Hopefully this study... And this program is going to help you to step back and get a much bigger picture of what God has been purposing from the beginning and what he will be completing. And essentially, this is the comparison. The final redemption is still yet to happen. The Redeemer has come and done the work of sacrifice, but that's only one segment of what is under the umbrella of what we call the redemption of Israel. Now, I'm going to need to go into some detail on each of these pieces. I hope you'll bear with me. So right from the beginning, let's talk about where redemption came from. Before I try to explain how the final redemption works, let's talk about how redemption began to begin with. If you were to go to a person who studied the Torah or teaches the Torah, and you ask him, where's the first verse in the Torah that begins to explain redemption, he would direct you to go to Genesis 37, uh, verse 12 and 13. Let me read these verses to you. These are the first verses that begin to explain what God's redemption is all about. It says there in Genesis 37, beginning at verse 12 and 13, Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. Now, if you recount the story, Jacob has returned to the land with all of his sons and with his wives. They're settled into the land, and they have a, a great flock. Apparently, the flocks had to be moved to different parts of the country and the land so they could be fed and cared for. The brothers had taken the flock out and were caring for the flock. Jacob was at another place with Joseph. And Jacob was interested in seeing that the flock is okay and that the the sons were going to be okay. So he dispatched Joseph to go and check on them. As you know, the rest of the story goes in that the brothers turned against Joseph, sold him into slavery. He ends up going down into Egypt Later on, when there's a famine in the land 
And Joseph has been highly successful in Egypt. He becomes the viceroy of Egypt. And the brothers will have to go back to buy grain and food from Joseph, but they won't know it's Joseph. You have this micro picture of the Redeemer. In fact, that's the reason why we say this is the first verses on redemption. We're telling the story of the Redeemer. The Redeemer, the definition of the Redeemer and what he does is part of the great story of what redemption is about. Let me give you a quick biblical definition, just a dictionary definition, shall we say, of what redemption is. To, to redeem is to purchase someone out of slavery. There's an exchange that takes place. In the case of the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, that's when they received redemption. They came out of slavery. They were saved by the Lord. They were redeemed by the Lord. But the first person who was ever enslaved in Egypt that started the process of them going to Egypt was Joseph. So the story of Joseph beginning this journey to go down into Egypt, to be enslaved, to be raised up, this is where we get the story of redemption working in how it begins for the story of the children of Israel and throughout the Bible. I would remind everybody that the dominant teaching of the entire Torah, of the five books of Moses, is all about this generation that's in Egypt, that's redeemed out of Egypt by the Lord, brought out, and their experiences of leaving Egypt and heading toward the promised land. That, too, is a micro-picture of all of us in this world. Now, in the case of the Messiah being pictured by Joseph, let me just remind you of a few key things. Joseph is sent by the Father. Yeshua used to tell the brethren when he was being questioned about the things that he was doing in his ministry, he would make this statement often, my father sent me. The phrase, my father sent me, is well understood to tie back to this Genesis passage as part of the teaching of this, that it was the father who sent the son. He's given the authority from the father to go to do this work, to do this work of redemption. It was purposed by the Father. In the same way, the Messiah came to do the will of his Father. He was sent by his Father. He does not take on his own thing with regard to that, but always gives honor and deference back to the Father who sent him. If you follow in the Gospels, you'll find several instances when Yeshua would give that response, my Father sent me that the religious Jews would become very agitated and very irritated with him because they knew what that expression meant. That's part of the story of redemption. Now, if you remember, Joseph goes out, and there's a couple of interesting things that happen to him. He goes to the place where he thinks that they're going to be at, can't find his brothers, but then this strange man appears to him and tells him to go to Dotham. Dotham means the two pits, the name of that part. And we don't know who this mystery person is, but it's very clear there's a mysterious part of the story which sets the hint that God is doing something very special here. I would echo this, that when it comes to redemption, God is doing a very special thing here. This is not something that's just out of the ordinary. This is a very special thing that is done by God. That's the reason why there's such attention given to it. Now, Joseph goes, and immediately his brothers hate him. They want to get rid of him. They want to kill him. If you remember the story, they threw him in a pit. Ultimately, he was sold for a price. Then he's taken captive down into Egypt. In the same way, the prophecy of the Messiah, the Redeemer, is that he will be rejected by his brethren, and he'll be sold for a price. In the case of Yeshua being thrown in a pit, that's exactly what it was, was that when he was before the high priest, the high priest in his house had a pit that they confined him into, and they brought him out for his trial, and that they paid 30 pieces of silver you know, to get him, so there was a price paid for him. And then Joseph raises up, becomes the viceroy of Egypt, and there's a day coming when Yeshua who's come out of the pit, he is going to be essentially in charge of the world. And this is going to come as a great shock to a whole lot of people 
that we thought that he went away and that he was never going to come back, but he will reemerge, just as Joseph's brethren thought Joseph was gone, we're never going to see him again, and suddenly he reemerges, but he reemerges with great authority and great power. And at the same time, Joseph tells his brethren in this whole story, at the conclusion of Genesis, that God purposed for him to go to be a surety for the brethren and to preserve and keep them. And in the case of the famine, Joseph was the guy who was instrumental in getting food to them and bringing them to Egypt to where they could be preserved and kept. And in the same way, the Messiah has done the same for us. The Messiah has preserved us and kept us despite the circumstances of the world that we're in, and he has brought redemption to us. So with these words, we get the first introduction to redemption, and the first words in the scripture is where we have redemption. Now, I want to put emphasis on the, in the biblical definition of redemption, it involves a person, namely the Redeemer, namely the work of the Messiah. So when we talk about the final redemption of Israel, we are talking about the work of the Messiah with Israel. Let me go back to this basic statement from the very beginning. In the present world today, especially in the present theological world today, the church teaches that the Messiah is the Redeemer. He's come and done the work of redemption, and now he's set up the church. And that Israel is no more. That Israel had their chance with God, but Israel blew it. They rejected the Messiah, so they are separate from what God is doing with the church. They could not be more wrong about this. And that statement is absolutely, according to the Bible, false. The plan has always been that the Messiah would come, be rejected by his brethren, but it would afford the opportunity for the message to go worldwide, and God will still be faithful to what he has promised Israel, and Israel will be the future kingdom. And the Messiah will be coming back to restore Israel. And I'm going to show you a lot of prophecies and a lot of promises from God where that is so. Now, for those who are dispensationalists, and they evangelical Christians have those little segments of different things, that falls short of explaining what's going on here. I am here to tell you that since the resurrection, that the God of Israel and the Messiah himself has been instrumentally involved with the life of Israel in this entire period and the children of Israel, both the scattered house of Israel, the northern kingdom, as well as the southern house, the Jewish people, or the house of Judah. He has been involved. Now, what has happened is the church, the Gentiles, broke away from this whole concept, they decided to set up their own thing, so they established the institution of the church to be opposed to what God was doing with Israel. And while they're getting away with it for a while, this is getting ready to come to a crashing end. Because in the final redemption, God is going to prove and show once and for all that he's the God of Israel, that he makes promises to Israel, and he keeps them. And he does not say in the scripture that he keeps promises to the church. It's to Israel. We're the commonwealth of Israel. So when I'm talking about the final redemption of Israel, I'm talking about literally the final redemption of all of us. Because whether um, Christians like it or not, you're part of Israel. You're part of the remnant of Israel. You're not separate and autonomous from it, despite what church fathers and church teachers might tell you. Now, let me simplify the definition just a bit more. The Jewish people referred to one segment of the final redemption as their opposition to the Messiah, and that's what a lot of the scriptures are about when it talks about the final redemption, is about the gathering and the return of the exiles. If you recall, Israel has been scattered into the nations, so the idea of, of the Messiah bringing them back which indicates that he's still been involved with Israel the whole time. He knows exactly where they're at. They're there for punishment reasons. That mean, didn't mean that he ended the relationship with them. It's that he's being disciplined. I would remind you that a father 
if he takes his son and disciplines him, the understanding is not that he ceases to be his father. In fact, he is really being his father when he takes him and corrects him and disciplines him. And the same thing is true of God with regard to Israel. Now, we're going to look at some details of that and how that worked and where we're at in real time uh, to see how this redemption works. So there's a single verse that stands out that is the beginning of the teaching in the Torah of redemption. But let me take you to the book of Job. We think the book of Job was actually written potentially before the Torah was written by Moses or certainly in the same time frame as Moses. In fact, many believe the book of Job was written by Moses. If you remember the story of Job and his conflict with Satan, how he lost everything, but then he gained it back. And we learn a lot of things about God's relationship with a man personally and intimately. Take you to Job chapter 19 and verse 25. It says, as for me, this is Job speaking. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Now that's coming from Job, which is way back in the early days of Moses and before Moses. And there is the discussion of a Redeemer. And there's also the discussion of a Redeemer who's going to accomplish something at the last. And that would be at the end of the ages. So when I'm speaking of the final redemption, I'm using the same definition that Job gave. There is a Redeemer, and there is a plan for him to do things as a Redeemer, and he will take his stand at the last. He will be at the final thing, will be the final redemption as we come to the end of this time period that we have here. Let me also take you to a couple of verses in the Psalms. Psalm 78 is also a psalm that recounts a lot of the Exodus. It recounts the whole story of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. And in Psalm 78 and verse 35, it makes this following statement. It says, And they remembered God was their rock, and the Most High God their Redeemer. The psalmist is saying that in the days of Moses and the children of Israel, that they viewed Almighty God and all the things that were going on with Egypt, the judgments and so forth, and the whole Lamb thing, the Lamb of God thing, that they knew God was doing the work of redemption. In other words, he was the Redeemer. And again, going back to the base biblical definition of the word to redeem, it means to purchase out of slavery. They knew and they saw that God was the redeemer for bringing them out of the slavery of Egypt. The very first statement by God in the Ten Commandments, when he first spoke to the children of Israel from Mount Sinai, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the definition. I'm your redeemer. It's understood from those words that the commandment to us of those words is believe in me. I am the Lord, your God, personally your God. I'm your personal redeemer. I'm your personal savior. Look what I did. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I redeemed you. So therefore, we believe in the Redeemer. So the emphasis in Psalm 78 is that the Most High God was their Redeemer. Now, you and I, when we believe in Yeshua, one of the things we say, well, you believe that he's your Savior. You believe that he's Redeemer. Absolutely. Amen and amen. That's exactly what the children of Israel were instructed to believe when they came out of Egypt the first time. Continuing in Psalm 78, again, well, essentially, I wanted to just share that key verse. I don't need to continue on. I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 59. And this is the way Isaiah is going to recount. But I want you to listen to the words because he's not talking about historical things. He's talking into the future about the Redeemer. In fact, as we're getting ready to find out, you're going to find out this is Isaiah talking about the end of the ages. 
So the Redeemer is going to be part of the end of the ages as well as those who brought out the children of Israel. Isaiah chapter 59 at verses 20 and 21 it says this, A Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. These words were first said before there was ever a new covenant. Think about that for a moment. They were said before. So the covenant that they're referring to is the covenant that God made with mankind prior to the new covenant, where he says a redeemer will come to Zion. The redeemer is going to be dealing with Israel. When I hear Christians talking about, well, really the real redeemer, it's really what we have in the new covenant. It's not really part of the old covenant. is absolutely false. By the way, let me just tell you, these words I just read to you, they're quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, and I'm going to take you to Romans 11. I'm going to show you he is speaking of things in the future when we already have, if you will, Christians are now with us. And Christians were planned to be part of Israel while they may be called Christians because they follow Christos, the Messiah. We call them Messianics because they follow the Mashiach, Messiah. Um, it's one prophecy that involves Israel and the people who believe in the God of Israel. It's one prophecy. It's not separate and distinct. And it's going to be very profound when I show you how Paul makes an argument of how we're all together, we're all part of the commonwealth of Israel. What God has started with the work of redemption from the very beginning is still working the redemption today even with us, and it will conclude all the way up to the end of the ages. Now, the first thing I've got to do is kind of do some unteaching a little bit because the church, upon viewing all of this, and the church fathers in particular, those that have been teaching the Bible for many years, they try to define everything that we just talked about, and they try to say, well, what has happened is God has really rejected Israel. Israel has misbehaved. They didn't keep the covenant. They didn't keep the commandments. They didn't trust the Messiah. They acted with hostility toward the Messiah. They rejected the Messiah, and they rejected the prophets, and so they finally went too far, and God said, enough is enough, and they've been rejected scattered into the nations as part of the punishment. But the church teaches fundamentally those covenants that God made with Israel before, like the one being mentioned by Isaiah, those covenants don't exist anymore. There's no more substance to them. In fact, the super simplified definition of most church theologians is the only thing that comes out of the Old Testament into the faith of today is some of the moral law. But certainly the covenants... And the promises that were given to Israel, they say are of none effect. In fact, what they love to do is hijack those promises and claim, oh, well, those promises are now being for the church. And that is absolutely false. And one of the things that I intend to show to you is profoundly how false that teaching is. God remains faithful to Israel. They, the Gentile teachers like this of the church, they would like to divide the world into Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Christians. And they don't see the two coming back together again at all. Of course, in these days, with the Messianic movement taking on, where we have some Jewish believers who are believing the Messiah, promoting the Messiah, testifying of the Messiah. So the question comes down to, well, where do these guys fit? Do they... Are they part of the church or the the Gentile church, or are they still Jews? Well, we are the original Christians. We are the original believers of the Messiah. We date all the way back to our fathers. We date all the way back to Moses and our ancestors who believed in the Redeemer, who knew that the Redeemer lives and that he will stand in the last day, just as Job said. That's the Redeemer we're talking about, the Redeemer that brought us out of Egypt 
That's the Redeemer looking for. Now, as to the specific work of redemption the Messiah came and did, was he simply fulfilling a whole series of prophecies? He gave a picture of what was going to be going on. Abraham, our father, promised to us that God would provide the lamb in that place himself. And the Messiah has come as the lamb of God, the Passover lamb, to be our redemption out of Egypt, out of this world, out of sin, so that we might be passed from death to life. This is what the original message has always been from the beginning. The Messiah comes and does that. That doesn't mean that's over with. That just reinforced how valid that teaching was. But as I'm going to show you, that ancient stuff, the text that talked about how the Messiah would do that, it also talks about other things the Messiah will do. And I might get some people who would argue against that and say, no, no, everything is complete in the Messiah. No, it's not. I would remind everybody in Jeremiah 31 where it talks about the new covenant. It says the new covenant will come to the point there will be a day that you will not have to say to another man, know the Lord, because everyone will know the Lord. That day does not exist yet. And that's part of the promise of the new covenant, that there would be a day coming that we would not have to say to another man, know the Lord. And it also follows with all of the other things the New Covenant had to, as its promises and so forth. We've only got it initiated and started. The final redemption is still yet to come. Let me take you to, to counter that false teaching. Let me take you to Romans chapter 11. And I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul teaches emphatically. And it's almost like he anticipated that this was going to be the issue, that this was what was going to come up, that in the day's future, the Gentiles would, Gentile believers would somehow think themselves to be separate from the Jewish believers, from that of Israel, and he could sense it was going to happen, and so he taught specifically so it wouldn't happen. But as you know, it did happen. But we still have the teaching from Paul trying to correct it, and so let's examine that. Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, the scripture says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And let's go ahead and just answer that question right now. Has God rejected his people? We're talking to Israel now. Has God rejected Israel as a result of the work of the Messiah and him coming and all that we see that has transpired? He's going to answer this and say, absolutely not. Full stop. Paul, who's the predominant New Testament teacher for doctrines and teachings of the church, has said that God did not reject Israel when the Messiah came. He didn't reject Israel when the Messiah got resurrected. He didn't reject Israel when the apostles came. He didn't reject Israel when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. He didn't reject Israel when they got scattered uh, to the nations. He did not reject Israel, and he said he would never would do that. However, here's Paul, and here's his argument, and here's he's going to try to teach to understand. And remember now, this is to a Gentile audience, so it's like he's talking to modern-day Christians today to try to get this corrected. He says, For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, Paul didn't quit being a, a, a son of Israel. And just because you believe in the Messiah, you don't quit being part of Israel if you're a physical native. You don't stop doing it. And so he's arguing, Look at me. I'm standing here. I've not been rejected by God. And he's our teacher in this particular case. God has not rejected his people, which he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? Now, he's going to go back and he's going to talk about examples of where Israel has messed up, if you will, but how God has solved those problems, how he's worked through the problems, especially when Israel has misbehaved. And he says, let me take you to the passage about Elijah. And if you remember... In that particular time, while we had Jezebel, 
and we had King Ahab, and they had they had chosen the prophets of Baal, and they were rejecting the God of Israel, and there was great trauma coming to the nation as a part of it. Elijah thought he was standing alone uh, for the name of God in the midst of it. And it continues on how he pleads with God against Israel, and he quotes him, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? What did God say to Elijah when he thought, that, hey, Israel's been rejected, you know, Israel's walked away from the Lord? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Throughout the entire period of time between the resurrection of Yeshua to this present day, there has been a remnant of Israel that has been kept by the Lord. By gracious choice, they are believers in the Redeemer, in the Redeemer of Israel, the Almighty God Redeemer, the same one who brought our ancestors out of Egypt, that Redeemer, the same one who spoke the Torah, that Redeemer. They believe in that Redeemer and they continue on. So it doesn't make any difference if you have a bunch of Gentile believers who decide to redefine the theology the, the fact remains that God has preserved and kept a remnant of Israel the whole time. And so for any Gentile, any Christian, to come up and say, well, God's done with Israel, he's lying. He's just terribly ignorant as to what the promises of God are and what has historically happened. And he's following a theology in which men who are opposed to the things of God have hijacked it. They've added to, taken away, just like the complaint that the Messiah had of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We have the same thing happening with the church fathers. They've added to, taken away. They've tried to foul up what God is trying to do with his people. But God has remained faithful even in the days of Elijah. He said, I still have 7,000. You're not alone, Elijah. There's still men. I know who they are. And to this day and to this present time, he still has a remnant of Israel. Let me repeat the verse again to you. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer is grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. There was the children of Israel, and especially Israel in the days of the Messiah, they were striving to find the things of God. They were a religious people. But they didn't get it. When the Messiah came, when the redemption came, they rejected it. Why is it that they were seeking for that, but they didn't get it? Because they sought it by doing works of their own, not by God's grace. And this is something that God gives to us, not something that we go and do on our own. And the rest were hardened, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Now they're there, they claim to be believers. They're trying to follow the God of Israel, but they can't see. They can't hear. They do not have spiritual eyes. They do not have spiritual ears. Same issues happen today. How is it that we have certain religious men who are leaders within the Christian community, but they're not believers? Well, it's because they have eyes and they can't see, and they have ears and they can't hear. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 2 that we who are of the faith, that we speak in spiritual words and spiritual thoughts, and a natural man cannot understand or foolishness to him. A lot of it has to go back to you have to start believing in the God of the Bible. Are you ready for this? From Genesis 1.1. You have to start believing from the very first verse. And then you have to start listening to what God said at the mountain. And you've got to believe it. And it continues on as he makes covenant with man, with Adam. Believe it. 
He makes covenant with Noah. Believe it. He makes covenant with Moses and the children of Israel. And so on up through the covenants. You have to believe each one. This is God manifesting himself to us. This business of, well, we got this one covenant and that does away with all the other covenants is sheer nonsense. That is never the way God has done this. The way God's doing it today is the same way he's done it before. He does not change on this matter. As he's quoting here from David, and David says this, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. Even despite Israel doing these things, what, did they fall completely from God's grace? No. Now, is God happy with what they're doing? No. God, he's punishing them. And I will say to you that when a father takes the time to discipline his son, it's not because he doesn't love them and not because he's not being the father. I submit to you that is when he does love them and when he is really the father to discipline and to train. And Israel has been subject to the discipline and training of the Lord. We can step back. We can see the whole picture of the many blessings and curses throughout the history of Israel and how it all has worked. So he says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Okay, now let me talk to you who are sitting here at the moment saying that you think God rejected Israel. He didn't reject Israel. As a result of what has taken place here, salvation has come to you. All right? To make them jealous. I can tell you for a fact that in the land of Israel today, when they find out that most of the Messianic believers that are in the Messianic movement are in fact not Jews, are in fact in their definition Gentiles, and they hear of your testimony of keeping Sabbath and keeping feast, the feasts of Israel and keeping kosher and obeying the commandments and learning the Torah, they're like, why are they doing that? That's what we're supposed to do. They are provoked to jealousy. They find it intriguing. And God is using the Gentiles to provoke Israel, to get Israel to rethink what they're doing, the direction they're going, and turn back to the Lord. He goes on to say this now. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure riches for Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch as that I am an apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, for if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now let me just put that in context for you because that's part of the definition of the final redemption of Israel. Yes, Christians and Gentiles have become believers and they've received salvation. But when we get all of Israel that God is talking about, the remnant of Israel, when we get them to turn back fully back to the Messiah, we're talking about the resurrection of the dead. That's one of the definitions of the final redemption of Israel. It includes the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of all saints throughout history. Which, by the way, that should strike you as extremely profound. It's one thing to see the salvation of a person. It's a whole other thing to see the resurrection of the saints. If the first piece of dough, now this is the logic that he's making. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. If the root is holy, the branches are too. Do we understand the logic of that? If you have a first piece and, you're, and it's going to rise, the dough's going to rise, and the first piece of dough is holy, as it rises, and, you know, as you rise bread, dough, bread dough, before you bake it, if that rises, then the whole thing is holy, right, if the first one was holy. Well, the same thing is true of if I have a tree and the root is holy, then everything that comes from that root, all the branches that grow and so forth, it is holy as well. And so he's saying from the very beginning, God has been working with Israel 
whom he considers to be holy, and that everything comes from it for all that is. The rising of the bread or the branches of the tree. Now, this is where he's going to get into an interesting discussion about this because he said, but if some of the branches were broken off, and by the way, we do know that some of the branches of the olive tree of Israel were broken off, unbelief, disobedience. The husband trimmed those branches that were dead and were not bearing fruit for him. He trimmed the tree, pruned it, and broken off. And you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them to become a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. The church is out of the root of Israel. The branches of the Gentile nations that have come in to become part of the faith of the God of Israel are grafted into a root that's called Israel. Now, just because they are, and they're wild branches, did that change the name of the tree? No. It's still the same tree it was based on the roots. It's just that that root now is nourishing that wild branch that has been grafted in. So it can come to fullness and benefit just like the natural branches. Now, he goes on and he takes this word picture a little bit further. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. The Gentiles have come to faith as a result of the disobedience uh, of the children of Israel rejecting the Messiah, and that's a result of why many in the nations and the Gentiles have come to faith in the Messiah and the true Redeemer. Amen and amen. Absolutely, you are correct. That is, in fact, what has happened. But he goes on to say, quite right, they were broken off for unbelief, but you stand by your faith. What is your faith? It's not based on what somebody rejected. It's based on what God said to begin with. And God's purpose from the very beginning with Israel was for all of the families of the earth to be blessed as a result of what he was doing. It was God's intention to raise up Israel as a nation so that they would be a light to the nations and all the other people, so that Israel could bring forth the true Redeemer for all mankind. Now, he's done that. He's used Israel for that purpose. Does that mean that he's rejected Israel? No. Israel still remains, and Israel is still his main plan that he's been working to. And so he's telling the Gentile branches, do not consider yourself arrogant. Do not think you're different or above them. You are being supported by the same root, the same tree that the natural branches are being supported from. And you have no position to, to be conceited. In fact, he says, do not be conceited, but fear for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. So here's Israel, natural branches, the tree. Some of the branches have decided not to obey. They've decided to be in unbelief. So God has taken Israel that he raised up for the benefit of the world. He's broken off those dead branches. He's made room for wild branches to become in so the Gentiles come in. Was this God's original plan? Yes. He knew Israel would misbehave. He knew they would have branches broken off. But he was going to use this one tree that was going to support all of mankind. And he has continued to do that. So in the same way we should know, if God's judgment was severe enough to take natural branches of unbelief and cut them off, do you think God would also take wild branches that are grafted in that become unbelievers and disobedient? Do you think he would pull those out too? The answer is obviously yes. If the natural branches are not preserved from his judgment, the wild branches are certainly not preserved from his judgment. They have no 
position above Israel. I got to tell you something. Uh, the teaching of the church is the exact opposite of what I just said. The teaching of the church is we don't have to follow the commandments of God anymore. We get to do whatever we want because we have God's grace. When you flaunt against God's word. Now, if Israel, because they didn't believe in his commandments and didn't keep his commandments, were judged, what do you think God's going to do with all these people claiming to be Christians who flaunt against his commandments and deny his commandments and teach others to deny his commandments. How, how do you think that's going to go over? Well, I can just tell you, if he didn't spare the natural branches, he's not going to spare the wild branches. And there will be a great judgment coming at the end of the ages in the final redemption. And those that are there by God's grace and those that look to the Lord only, they stand in their faith only. They're the ones that are going to remain, just like he said, if they remain with kindness and stand in their faith. So he goes off and he continues here to say, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. What's he talking about? Natural branches. If God wants to, he can take natural branches that had been broken off and he can graft them back in. Now, you would think that once a branch comes off, well, the branch is dead. Not with God. God has the power to raise things from the dead. God has the power to change you completely. And so if they're willing to return and obey then he says, I'll restore you. This is also part of the final redemption. The Redeemer doesn't just come and save us from sin. Even after you have come to know him, does he not also still continue to save you even if you do sin after you've received the salvation? Even if you go to the point of where you almost reject the Messiah, you disobedient to the Messiah, does he still have the power to want to save you in the end? And the answer is yes. We believe God's grace and mercy is that powerful that he's able to restore even the natural branches back to it if they had been cut off from before. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will you, these who are natural branches, be grafted in their own olive tree? It's one thing to see the Gentiles coming into the faith and all the people of the nations. That's wonderful. It's great. How much more do you think God wants to see Israel and Israel and the nations today come back in to the faith and be grafted back into the tree? I can assure you he wants that as a very high priority because that is a picture of who he really is to the whole world. And that is not what men would think. That is how God is different from all men. And then he says this. He said, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. You will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. God has said Right now, we're in a period of time where he calls it the fullness of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the, the big thing in the faith. The, 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 you can find more Gentiles who believe in the Redeemer than you can find of Israel. But is that the end of it? No, that's not the end of it. He says there's going to come a time when all of a sudden Israel's going to come back into prominence, into that, and thus all Israel will be saved. Now, what we're talking about is the work of the Redeemer. We're talking about that the Redeemer knows how to save and his arm is not short in salvation. He goes on to say, to prove this point, thus all Israel shall be saved, he quotes from Isaiah. Now you should recognize this quote because it was one of the things I shared with you about the definition of redemption. Just as it's written, the deliver will come from Zion he will restore ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. 
the agreement that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Moses, through the children of Israel, is still in effect when it comes to this redemption. The deliverer, who is the Messiah, the Redeemer, will come from Zion. The church is not Zion. Zion is something associated with Israel. And remove ungodliness from Jacob. Now we're talking about the physical descendants of Israel. There's the descendants of the house of Jacob, and then there's aliens and sojourners who join with. They're all the assembly of the commonwealth of Israel. They're all numbered as being part of Israel. But he's emphatically saying, brethren, do not be arrogant against God's judgment toward Israel in this time. God has every intention of finally restoring them and bringing them back, and he's going to redeem them. This is the definition of what we call the final redemption of Israel. It's all been building up to the final periods of the time of the ages that we live in, but this is the best definition I can give you to start off this topic. I want to teach you more about the final redemption of Israel. This is God's intention to do this, and we're going to look at some details of how in the world is he going to accomplish this in the midst of the world that we live today in the midst of all that's going on with regard to the Christian church and the Gentile Christians versus the nation of Israel. And how does it all fit together? How, what has God said is going to happen so that we see thus all Israel is saved? So that's our first program. I look forward to sharing with you in the next program. And until then, shalom.